Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Let's go Luke chapter 1. So we're going to start a new series today. It's the book of Luke, and actually we'll be in Luke, gosh, it'll take us a year maybe even longer, and we'll do some, some little shorter series in between um, probably, but we'll be in this, in this gospel for a long time. So Luke is a gospel. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each of the gospels take a different perspective on the life of Jesus. And so a gospel is simply a narrative is what it is, and it's a narrative about the good news that Jesus came and he is the Messiah. And uh, with any narrative, it's important that we understand the, the context in which that narrative is written. So today, here's my goal. Today is to really give us an outline or kind of the big picture of the book of Luke as we jump in over the next few weeks and start kind of working through this book piece by piece. Now, um, I grew up in Springfield, a little school called Sunshine Elementary just down the road. Uh, and I was what you might call a spirited young man. Um, I had a special desk in the corner right by the teacher in most of my elementary classrooms from about second grade through fifth grade. Um, I wasn't mean, I was, I was just spirited. Uh, I liked to uh, get up and talk to people and mess with them a little bit and have fun. Apparently teachers didn't really think that was cool. Uh, but one of the things I picked up in English is when you're telling a story, you're telling a narrative, there's five important things you have to cover, right? Who, what, when, where, and how or why, yeah, depending on, right? And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the book, Gospel of Luke through that narrative, who, what, when, where, and why. Um, and so here, here's a question that some of you are asking, why Luke? Like there's four Gospels, there's all these books of the Bible. Why did you choose Luke? Well, in the fall, we walked through a series called Redemption Through History. Where we started in Genesis and walked through the narrative of the Old Testament. And the reason we chose Luke as Luke wrote this, this gospel, and his goal was to carry the story on from the end of the Old Testament and show us how Jesus was that promised Messiah. And so it's just like this seamless connection from the end of the Old Testament into the book of Luke, and then he goes on to explain to us who Jesus is. And then actually, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, where he goes into the first century of the, new ch of the church that came after Jesus. So we're, that's why we're going to look at the book of a book of Luke, but he picks up the story and he shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of this redemptive narrative of the Old Testament. Um, let's jump in, Luke chapter one, uh, and we'll, let's look at verse one. And one of you in the back, I forgot water up here. If you wouldn't mind, I'd appreciate it. Uh, Luke chapter one, uh, verse one. Here's what he says. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke acknowledges there are other narratives about Jesus. When he says what's happened among us, he means this advent of Jesus coming. And uh, one, of the, one of the resources that Mark used in compiling this is the book of Mark, and that's probably what he's talking about there. They've been compiled among us, verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to them. So here's what he says. He says, listen, there's been other works, there's other people that have written about this Jesus, and there are eyewitnesses that witness some of the things and the miracles and the teachings, thank you, Cody, that Jesus did. That's what he says in verse 1 and 2. And so let's take care of the who. We have who. It's, it's Luke. Luke is the author 
Um, he wrote, wrote two books, Luke and Acts. And Luke is not an apostle. He's not a disciple. Um, he's not a pastor. He is a doctor. That's his profession. He's a physician. Um, he's also not just a physician. He's a historian. I might call him an investigative reporter. Uh, and he is a very specific writer and he's writing in a very specific ge geographical context, historical context, and he is very specific in his details. As a matter of fact, when he's writing, he'll go to the trouble of listing territories and who's in charge of that territory just to make sure that everything he says is factual and he sets the context for that. Okay? He's, like, maybe it came from his medical you know, training, but he's a very precise person. I guess you want your doctor to be precise, right? A kidney somewhere in this region. Let's just find it. No, you want him to know what he's doing. And, and because of that training, that's how Luke writes. Now, this is great for us. Luke is writing to a non-Jewish audience. And therefore, he's very careful to explain some of the customs, some of the geography that, that non-Jewish readers, most of us, would not pick up on. We would not know why that's significant. And so he takes the time to get into that. He was not a Jew. He was actually a Greek uh, that was who had apparently converted to the Jewish faith or to you know to this Jesus Messiah, um, and that he believes that Jesus is that promised Messiah, and he's writing. You'll see in in verse three, he's writing to a man named Theopolis. That's who his intended uh, recipient of this letter is, and Theopolis is a Roman, some type of Roman dignitary. He calls him most excellent Theopolis. So someone high up. In the Roman government, uh, in the in the military, and he's writing to this person. Now, here's what I love about Luke, um, and let's get into the what. What is he writing? Uh, Luke is going to write a very orderly and pre precise account of Jesus. Look at verse three. Here's what he says. It seemed good to me, also, Having followed all of things, all these things closely for some time past. I want you to catch that. Luke says, it seemed good, good to me because I, Luke, have followed all things closely for some time past. It seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis. So here's what we know about Luke into this. And here's what I, I believe about Luke. Luke is a skeptic. Any skeptics in the house? You can, I'm a skeptic. You can raise it proud. Yeah. Just like you don't always take things at face value, right? You're not going to get in with the, with the latest trend and, and just take things without kind of wrestling through them, either looking at the research or, or, or uh, philosophically wrestling through these things. And Luke is an educated man. And he says that he has followed all of these things closely. And it appears that Luke had this time where he is wrestling with, am I going to believe this Jesus person? That's caused this uproar. Am I going to believe that he is who he says he is? And so because of that wrestling and that skepticism, he has done his research. He's followed things closely. He's talked to the eyewitnesses. He's read the accounts. He's put it all together. And he has wrestled with this. Like Luke is not the fad guy. He's not going to jump on the new fad diet. You know, he's not doing the keto thing right now because there's not enough research for him. He's got to see the long-term effects of that. Uh, he's not going to jump on your new workout program that everyone, like, he's just going to take his time. He's not falling for the pyramid scheme. You know, hey, i got to get you on a ground level of this thing. Like, he's not doing that. He's going to see through it. By the way, I'm not interested either. Just get that out of the way. Um, he's not a blind faith guy. 
He's taken his time to investigate. This book is written 40 years after the death of Jesus. There are still eyewitnesses around, and Luke has cross-checked the facts. So he's heard the story about a blind man being healed. And so here's what Luke would have done. He would have went to the town where that supposed blind man had been healed, and he just started asking the locals, hey, tell me about something that happened handful of years ago. I, I, heard, uh, I heard there was a deaf guy, and he was healed out, out, here, out here. Well, no, actually, the guy was blind. He's like, ah, oh, man, I thought I was going to get you. He, he checked it out. He researched the fact because he's not just going to take things on face value. Think of the implications for an educated Greek doctor to jump on this bandwagon of a poor Jewish Messiah. And he has wrestled with it, and that's what he says, that he has followed things closely. And so he did his own investigative work, and he came to the conclusion that Jesus is the promised Messiah that the Hebrew Bible points to. And now, because of that conclusion and that wrestling, he is now a passionate follower of Christ. By the way, if you're the doubter, the skeptic, we invite the wrestling. You don't have to pretend like you don't have doubts. We invite that in because what will happen is you wrestle and bring those doubts and those insecurities and you're convinced, which I believe will happen, you will be more passionate than just pretending your doubts aren't there. We welcome those. Paul actually mentions Luke in a letter. I won't read it. It's on the screen, 2 Timothy um, chapter 4. Uh, Paul, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's like, listen, life has gotten tough for me. I'm being persecuted, and everyone's abandoned me. And I've sent a few people. I've sent Titus and some other people away, but the rest of my, the rest of my crew just left me except Luke. And he actually names him. And so what we see here is this skeptic who did his research has become convinced enough in who Jesus is that he is willing to hang with Paul through thick and thin and when life gets tough. So Luke, who, what, wrote an orderly account after investigating about who this Jesus is. Let's talk about the when and the where. Jesus writes his gospel 40 AD um, so, for, so about, about 37, 38 years after the death of Christ is when he writes this. Um, and one of the, the, the things that will be challenging for us, and if you've ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it can be challenging because often we read these narratives, we read these stories through our own cultural lens. And our 2018 values and understanding, one of the reasons we're doing that for the city um, forum on Friday night is to help us um, understand things through different cultural lenses that, that maybe we're not used to. But one of the challenges with reading the Old Testament is to read that and take the words and automatically apply them to our culture and our values. We can't do that, right? Jesus was born in an entirely different world, and even the language and the sayings and the customs are totally different than the world that you and I live in. I mean, consider the difference just in our world of, of one generation to the next and how they talk and how they communicate. So we have a lot of interns that work at Hill City that are college students. And some of the staff are sitting around one time and waiting on one of the interns to get there as a college student. So uh, Michael texts him like, hey, man, you coming? And, and we get back a OMW. And we're thinking like, oh, my word, like what happened, right? Well, apparently OMW means on my way, which Molly is our millennial, so she cleared that up for us. So we had a good laugh, and so we, we decided, you know, we'll, we'll text and see you here. So we just put S-Y-H see you know, for see you here, and we get a question mark back. Like, he didn't, he didn't follow our conversation carrying it out. Right? 
Now, it's easy, you know, all of us older people, uh, millennials, but we had our own stuff. How many of you were like 90s, 2000 people? Uh, you know some words that we had? Like, booyah. Remember that one? Yeah, all you students are like, huh, what, booyah. So something, yeah, booyah, like just prove ya right there, right? Or, uh, or if something was really, if something's really cool, you know, some, some kid showed up with his new dirt bike or something, like, man, that's bad, that's bad, which means that's really cool. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I have a few, I could keep going. Uh, one of them was like word, but I was never cool enough to say word. I don't know if any of you guys were. Uh, now we have some, we have some, and I won't, point you some next generation here. And I don't know what you guys said, groovy. I I don't know. Uh, But each generation, like each, even generational, we have our own words and our phrases and our sayings. Now think about 2000 years removed from a context, from a language, from a culture, from a custom. And then we're reading this, trying to make sense of it. So it will be challenging. Um, And the culture that Jesus is born into, I want to paint the picture of the scene, which he arrives into. Most of the people living in this land of Judea and Galilee, which is, which is where all this took place, they are very religious Jews. That's who is living in this society. If you remember our Redemption Through History series, right at the end of the Old Testament, the, the Jerusalem is, is ransacked, it's destroyed, and a bunch of, of the Israelites are taken to captivity in Babylon. And they're there for a while, and Daniel writes his prophetic stuff, and you have Daniel in the lion's den, all that stuff. And then a group of Israelites are allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Well, now, about 400 years later, those are the people, their descendants, that are living in this region. And they are very zealous Jews. If you remember from the series, Israel had its ups and its downs. I mean, they went from being super on fire to follow God to a few hundred years, they're sacrificing babies to this random God. I mean, they were up and down. But as far as Judaism goes, this is a high point. And so Jesus is born into this religious environment and there is a fear, like there's a frenzy in the town talking about that the Messiah will, should be coming soon. And they are anticipating this Messiah. And if you're a Jew living in this day when Jesus is born, you have hopes that maybe my generation will see the Messiah come. But here's what you also have to know if you're a Jew living this time, is you are once again occupied by another nation. And this time it's the Romans. And if you're a Jew living in that day, you hate the Romans. The Romans were known historically for their brutality and their high taxes. So imagine being a Jewish, um, a a poor Jewish farmer and 80, 85% of your income, you have to give away to the nation that occupies you and what you're doing is funding their military that now comes and treats you harshly. Can you imagine the hatred for them? As a matter of fact, right like the year before Jesus was born um, in the town of Nazareth, or just three miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up, um, there's a little community that the Romans came in and sieged it and burned it to the ground, took the remaining Jews and sold them into slavery because there was a little uprising in that town. They they were brutal. If you cause problems, you might find yourself in in a little amphitheater and getting yourself torn apart by a lion or a bear or something like that. You ever seen um, some of those movies? 
They were brutal. And you hated them. But you had this deep faith that God would send you a deliverer to deliver you and save you from this oppressive rule of the Romans. And if you're a Jew, you're crying out for God to save you. And that's the world that Jesus is born into. Jesus was born a Jew, living in a Jewish state, occupied by a Roman government, and Jewish, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Have you ever, how many of you ever met a Jewish rabbi? Anyone? Yep, none of us. And so Jesus comes as a Jewish rabbi, and again, for us, we never even talked to a Jewish rabbi in this day, much less one 2,000 years ago. How do we understand this guy named Jesus? It'll be difficult at times, but we're going to try to interpret him through the lens that, that he was living there. So Mark, so Mark, Luke, writes his gospel, 40 AD. He writes it to this Theopolis to prove to him that Jesus exists. He writes it and tells this story, this narrative about a Jesus that comes in this cultural, this crazy time where all these powers are at play. And here's the last question. Why did Luke write this? Why did he write his gospel? Let's look at verse three and four. Here's what he says. It seemed good to me. Having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis. Verse four, here's the why. So that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So apparently this Theopolis guy, which again, a big decision for him, he's someone high up in the government has decided that he is going to follow Jesus and he believes Jesus is, is the son of God. And so Luke is writing to him to give him an orderly account, a precise account, so Theopolis can be sure that the testimony about Jesus is true. That's his goal. He wants to show, listen, Theopolis, you can trust the narrative of this person named Jesus, and I will put all of these things together in a way that you can trust them. And so the, the outline of Luke's book, if, if kind of the big picture, if we want to take a big picture to look back at the book of Luke, there's really four parts to this book. And we'll kind of use these as little mini-series as we go through this. But first is arrival, and he'll, he'll spend more time talking about the birth of Christ than any other gospel. And the Christmas story that you read comes from the book of Luke. So he'll kind of show, and he'll show how the prophecy of the Old Testament has now come to fruition in Jesus in the New Testament. And he'll spend a few chapters on the circumstances around his birth. And then he will move on to the mission of Jesus. And who just Jesus was and what his mission was. And I'll tell you that his mission takes everyone by surprise. Because when Jesus shows up on the scene, he doesn't go to the rich and the elite and the educated and the teachers and the religious leaders. He doesn't go to them. Who does he go to? The poor, the broken, the sinners, the outcast. And Jesus is, is entirely different than what they expected. And Jesus shows them a new way of living that was entirely new to them. And because of that, he's actually rejected by much of the Jewish nation that he came to save. See, Luke will show that Jesus didn't come for the religious elite. He came for the outsiders and outcasts. Jesus does not fit their expectations Here's what we see about Jesus all through the Gospels. Jesus is a polarizing figure. You either love him or you hate him. It's like the Yankees, right? You either love the Yankees or you hate them. 
which we would all say, hate him, right? He's polarizing. As a matter of fact, when, when we see interactions with Jesus with people, there's no record of people responding with just this mild approval, like, yeah, Jesus, he's cool. He's got his ideas, but you know, he's a nice guy. You don't see that. Matter of fact, here's how, there's usually three responses. Hatred, they hate him and what he stands for and who he is. Terror or fear of him or worship and belief in him. Those are responses that he get that he gets. And here's the reality. Jesus will be polarizing to us. And I believe he intends to be. We will have to look at this person named Jesus. We'll have to look at the things he says and what he does and how he lives. And we'll be faced with the question, do I believe he is who he says he is or is he a nut job? But there's not much room in between there. It's interesting, in America, I did a little research, 2016 Gallup poll survey, survey said 89% of Americans believe in God, which that was crazy. I thought it'd be lower than that. 89% of Americans believe in God. And you can go to any, any award show and you can see rap artists, you know, I want to thank God for this rap artist, you know, this, this album or, you know, someone that wins the Super Bowl, I want to thank God. Like the idea of God is easy to talk about in America. We are a religious society that believes in a God. But here's the reality. Bring Jesus into the conversation and things get awkward because Jesus is polarizing. And here's what we have to do. We have to decide what to do with Jesus. Do we believe him that he is God and he is who he says he is or is he some crazy lunatic nut job? You have to decide what to do with that. There, you know, we've heard this, this thing that people say, well, I don't really believe Jesus is God, but he's, he's a good teacher. Uh, he's a good moral, you guys heard this before, he's a good moral teacher. Here's the problem, that doesn't work. C.S. Lewis um, wrote about this in a, in a book called Mere Christianity, about this idea that Jesus is a good teacher. Here's what he says, this is, this is great. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. And that is that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. I don't know why he chose a poached egg, but he did. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Because here's the reality, a guy that gets up in front of people and says, hey, I can forgive all of your sins. If he's not God, it's like, what? A guy that gets up and says, hey, you want to get to God? Okay, the only way to get to God is through me. Or at one point, Jesus will tell people, hey, you need to drink of me and eat of me, and I'm the ultimate food of life. It's like, what? What? 
Jesus will claim that he will rise from the dead, that he will be killed, that he will rise three days later. Uh, his followers claim that he did. As a matter of fact, though, it surprises even them. I don't even think some of them believed it because more than one occasion, Jesus has to convince them he's not a ghost when he rises. The things that Jesus claimed, the things he said, if he is not the son of God, he's an absolute nut job. If Jesus is not God, Hitler is a sane and humble man compared to him. So this idea that Jesus is just a great moral teacher, he's a good hippie love guy, it doesn't work. Because he doesn't claim to be a good moral teacher. He claims to be the promised Messiah, son of God. That's his claim. And you and I are going to be forced to say, what do I do with Jesus? And so here's our options. We can accept him and believe, or we can reject him and say he's crazy and Christianity is nuts. But the half-hearted middle option is not there. It's just not. It doesn't work intellectually. He's either who he says he is or he's nuts. No in between. Now, we can make up our hypothetical Jesus or create our own little idea of who Jesus is. That doesn't make it true, but we can create that person. And so as we look at the book of Luke, Luke has taken the careful time to make sure that we get a picture of who this real Jesus is. Now, here's a question you're asking. Well, how do we know Luke didn't make it up? Anyone thought about that? Okay, just me. Um, how do we know that the disciples didn't get together? You know, because they were all excited. They got this Jesus guy, they're going to take over the world, and then Jesus gets killed and crucified. And how do we know the disciples get in a room together and say, all right, well, Peter, that didn't work, did it? No, it didn't, it didn't work, but I'll tell you what, let's make up a story. And they get their heads together and they spend a few months and they write, okay, here's our story, that he was crucified, but then three days later he rose and, and let's start this movement. Maybe that happened. Let's think about this. Well, here would be my, some questions I might ask if that's kind of a concern of yours. Uh, a few different things. Number one, majority of the writers of the New Testament are Jews. The gospels that they write and then the letters after the gospels are books that kind of come against the belief of Jews in that day. And that is that a Messiah would come and create this new Jewish state that would rule the world. And as a matter of fact, not only did Jesus not do that, but he opened and welcomed in outsiders into this new faith that was totally a non-Jewish idea. And they would have had a really hard time getting on board with this. Matter of fact, if, you, if you've read the gospels, that's why so often they question him on why he's doing what he's doing. And when he says he's gonna die, Satan, you know, Peter's like, no, no, surely not you. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. When he gets arrested, what's Peter do? Takes a sword, like, all right, it's go time. And he starts hacking away. Jesus like, no, put up your sword. It is a totally non-Jewish idea, this Jesus that they end up writing about. Now, here, some other thoughts. Maybe the disciples made it up. But here's one of the things we see. The disciples or the, the writers of the New Testament are brutally honest about the disciples. And these disciples are depicted as petty, jealous, slow, and cowards. So imagine, let's imagine that room, disciples together, well, this Jesus said he didn't work out, but let's write a book, let's write some narratives, and let's just talk about how, how dumb we were, how we were totally missed and how we were totally off base. No, 
But all through the Gospels, we see the disciples as missing it. And here's, and I think the most, the, the biggest evidence that this is true. All of these disciples that we see that are making bad mistakes and abandon him when he gets arrested, all of these disciples die horrible deaths. And none of them recant. Not one. And I'm talking horrible deaths like, like you know, the electric chair didn't exist back then or, or uh, you know, a little injection. Like, I'm talking get your head cut off, um, crucified upside down, boiled alive in hot oil. Those are the deaths that they faced. Not one of them recanted and said, you know what? Sorry, stop. Made it all up. Made it all up. Okay, you can take away that execution. Not one of them. They all go to their death, believing and saying what we said was true. Here's the deal. I don't do that if I know it's fake. Like we want to get our heads together and we want to say loads for president, right? Uh, and and we, man, we're going to do this. We're going to take over the world. And we get behind it, man. This is going to be fun. And all of a sudden it starts going bad. And it's like, we start talking death. And I'm like, loads, man, you're on your own, buddy. I'm out. You don't, you don't die a horrible death for something you don't believe in. Last idea, why, these, why I think we can trust these writings. All of these gospels are written 40, so Luke's gospel 40, uh, Mark even before that, 40 to 60 years after the death of Jesus. Meaning, these narratives were circulating within the lifespan of people that were around while these things were happening. And so imagine someone writing a book. You, you know who died 40 years ago, by the way? Well, they say he died. We'll find out. You know who died? Elvis, right? So imagine, imagine stories start circulating now that Elvis at his concerts would float up into the crowd, and this is before all the cool stuff they do now, you know, but float up in the crowd over the people and hover there. And rumors start circulating. Now, I'm not going to point some of you out, but some of you would say, no, uh-uh, I was there, didn't see it. Now, he shook his hips a lot, but no floating, right? That, that's, what, that's what we would say because there's still eyewitnesses around that saw some of that. Here's the reality, that doesn't happen as these books start circulating. So Luke wrote his gospel. He takes this person, Jesus, he makes it real clear, and he wants us to have confidence that we can know the real Jesus. And here's what we have to know. Jesus will come against us, and you may not always like him. He may not always be the nice little cuddly Jesus holding a small child that you've seen in the paintings. He's not a white middle-class Republican. You may not always like him. He will confront our values. He'll confront our desires. He will come against our religion that we've created where we can kind of make our own way through religious achievement to, to get to God. He will come against that. But he will, what he will do is he will invite us into a new reality, a new way of living, a new kingdom. And he will say, I'm here to show you what God's kingdom really looks like. That's what he will say. And he will invite us in. And so the message of Luke is that God came down in the form of a man. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. And he showed us what God was like. That he lived a perfect life. That he died a death on a cross. 
that he wasn't killed, that he laid his life down. And what happened on the cross is that he took your sin, my sin, all of our junk upon himself, our deepest shame, our darkest secrets, he took upon himself. And on a cross, he paid for those. And God, God poured out his wrath against Jesus on the cross. You know why the cross was so bloody? Because God was punishing sin. It wasn't the Jews or the Romans that killed Jesus. It was God that killed Jesus. That he died on a cross for us and took our sin and in turn offers to us sinful, broken people. You know your story. I know my story. He offers to us his righteousness, his goodness. That's the message of Luke. And here's the crazy thing. And especially in America, we are achievers. How do we get that righteousness? Go to church, read my Bible, pray, give some money. No, you ready? How do you, how do you receive that? Believe. Come on, it's got to be harder than that. I got to do something, right? In our culture, we must do something to achieve. That, that's built in. And Jesus will come against that because here's what he will say. No, you need to believe. As a matter of fact, one person will come to Jesus at one time and they'll ask him, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to do the work God requires? Like, how do I please God? That's the question. What's he, what's he wanting? He's expecting a list of religious duties. Do these things. What's Jesus say? The work of God is to believe. What? Believe. See, here's the good news of the gospel. The good news is not that you're a nice, good person and you can come to church and kind of clean yourself up and make God proud of you. That's not the good news. The good news is that you and I are worthless sinners that Jesus came and died for. And now in him, we have righteousness and can, can approach God with confidence. That's the good news. And Jesus will continually show us it is not based on us. It is not based on our performance. And as we walk through this book of Luke, my prayer for you is that uh, is that God systematically just destroys any ounce of you that thinks that you can somehow achieve your own salvation and that you would just believe. It's believe. To believe is to rest in. That's what, believe's not just intellectually, oh, I believe in Jesus. No, Satan believes in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to rest in, to put your trust in, meaning if I'm going to get to God, it comes through Jesus' death on the cross, not my own moral achievement. That's what believe is. And the call will be to believe. And then as you believe, the response of that is repentance. Repentance means to orient your life around Jesus. So here's what I told these people that got baptized this morning. I talked to them right before. Here's what I told them. You guys are coming up here today this, to say you believe in Jesus and we've walked with you and we have confidence that you believe that. But here's what I told him. The rest of your life will prove whether this was real or not. Now, I'm not saying, and I told him, no, you don't have to be perfect. You're gonna make mistakes. But when you make mistakes, are you going to repent and orient your life around Jesus? Because here's the invitation. Come believe in me and then orient your life around the way I have taught you how to live. Faith and repentance. Now, it's not orient your life around the way I taught you to live, and if you do that good enough, you can go to heaven when you die. That's religion, and it's toxic. No, believe, and now orient your life around me. Now, we'll get in this in Luke. I would argue that the way of Jesus is actually the best way to live. 
and the most fulfilling. That's another day. So Luke has put together an orderly account for us that we might have confidence in who this Jesus is. And one of my favorite things to see as I walk with people is to see skeptics and doubters and outsiders become believers and then to see their whole life start to change around that and a joy and a peace that comes over them. It is beautiful. And I pray that for you. So skeptics, welcome. Doubters, welcome. Philosophers, welcome. Outsiders, welcome. Broken people, welcome. Let's find out who this Jesus is and let's ask the question, do I believe? Let's pray together.